back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain this last day before a long weekend, the Thanksgiving weekend, and there are a lot of little stories. Little meaning not banner headline across the front page of the Post and Times, but things that are nonetheless important. We're going to talk about a lot of those uh, issues. We're going to have um, a conversation about uh, domestic issues. There was a shooting last night, quite a deadly shooting. Just another shoot. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how many do we need to have a week? Seriously. And you know what? The Associated uh, Press is saying that this is the, the deadliest year in American history for mass shootings. Yeah, I didn't realize that no, until me today. Neither. There yes. were more shootings in terms of the sheer numbers in 2019, but this is a deadlier year. So right. this shooting was at a Walmart in Tidewater, Virginia, uh, which is a part of the greater, you know, Norfolk, uh, Virginia Beach area. Uh, and it turns out that, well, it took place in a Walmart. It turns out it, it was the manager of the Walmart. That's what it seems like, yeah. That walked into the break room and just opened fire on his colleagues. He killed six people before killing himself. Uh, this comes just days after uh, the murder of five people in, um, in Colorado at the Club Q nightclub. Uh, and, you know, one thing that we, we haven't really mentioned is this absolutely gruesome knife attack in uh, Idaho. That, oh, yeah, that ended no. in the deaths of four people. And the Do cops we know more about that. Not really. The Ugh. cops don't have any idea who did it. There's one grainy surveillance camera photo of a guy standing behind the victims uh, earlier in the evening. And that's it. They don't know. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, international affairs. There's a lot going on in places like Turkey, Syria, Iran, Iraq, even Brazil. Now, yesterday, former President Jair Bolsonaro decided that he does believe that the election was stolen from him. Yep. Steve Bannon says so. And so right. he filed a, an appeal mm -hmm. uh, saying that he is the legitimate president of Brazil. The only good side to that is that he's not urged his supporters to take to the streets. But yeah. Steve Bannon has. Yeah, Steve Bannon is. He's out there saying, oh, yeah, this is great. What they're doing is great. The yes. result's going to be interesting. I mean— he's complaining about voting machines that he didn't complain about in the first round. Of That's voting. right. Uh, and also it's being pointed out that the superior electoral court has, has certified the result already. That's right. So that would seem to stand in the way of his challenge, but and I we think will that's see why how that goes. Bolsonaro is not making a, a really big deal out of it. Yeah. We're going to talk about um, a Supreme court decision yesterday. Interestingly enough, it was a unanimous Supreme Court decision mm -hmm. to force Donald Trump to turn his ta to turn over his tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. To tell you the honest to God's truth, I don't even really remember why the committee wanted them. No, I don't. Remember. I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I, I tried to look. Is it back. to show us all that Donald Trump isn't a billionaire? Because we Probably. all we know that. Right. We, everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah. They say it has something to do with allegations of corporate tax fraud. Who knows? Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Um. But he's got to turn him over by next week. We'll see if he actually does. Yep. We're going to talk also about um, Kevin McCarthy making sounds, um, or I should say making noises, uh, assuming he's going to be the Speaker of the House, yeah. which is a big assumption at this point. But he's saying that uh, he wants to almost immediately begin impeachment proceedings against Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas over the border. Now, nobody in the House 
on the House Republican side is saying exactly what they want Mayorkas to do or what they wanted him to have done other than to keep up the Trump era uh, policies of at least trying to close the border. There was a statement by one of the Republicans yesterday. I think it was Jim uh, Jordan saying that uh, they want a promise from Mayorkas and from the White House that uh, that the Biden administration will complete the Trump border wall. That's just not going to happen. And even if Mayorkas is impeached, uh, there's no possible way on earth that the Senate will convict him. And so this is all for politics. It's all just a non-starter. Yeah. I also enjoyed the speculation that McCarthy might be planning a trip to Taiwan as well. You know, great. I actually that shouted was when you told me that. We just started talking to China again about climate change issues from yeah. the time Nancy Pelosi went. Like, for God's sake, could we just not, you know, tr- trigger the uh, collapse of these channels of communication again That's immediately? Right. That is right. Yeah. I just don't understand why we feel this compulsion to provoke the Chinese. I don't get it. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. We're going to talk about um, this odd shortage nationwide shortage of antiviral medication, antibiotics, especially amoxicillin, and a national shortage of Tylenol. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doctors are calling it a triple-demic because of this outbreak of RSV in the schools affecting children, the fact that um, this is the worst year for flu in the past 13 years, and uh, and COVID. COVID is still spreading. I don't know if this is a, and I'm going to ask our guest at, when the time comes, is this a supply chain issue? Is it a, a manufacturing issue or were we just taken by surprise? Something is going on at WikiLeaks. <coughs> you go to the WikiLeaks site, half the time you get a 502 error, only 3,000 documents of the 10 million documents that were available on the WikiLeaks website are, are still available. Something's happening there. It may be a hostile um, intelligence service attack. It may be a DDoS attack. It may be a problem with financing. We yeah. don't know. Um, I, I tweeted at WikiLeaks. We follow each other, uh, but they haven't, um, they haven't responded, but we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about developments in um, Turkey, Syria, Iran, Iraq, as I mentioned, Brazil, and then at the end of the show, we've got news of the weird. We've got news of the weird. We've also got some European economic news that we're going to get to. We sort of touched on this matter uh, in our conversation with Garland yesterday. Yes. Um, but and, and it has come up before, right? Uh, Europe is pretty upset. Oh, France and Germany in particular are pretty upset about provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes. That uh, they think would create an unfair competition environment with the United States when it comes to things like electric vehicles and, and the like. And so uh, the EU has been holding, according to Politico sources, holding emergency meetings on putting together their own fund to support Mm -hmm. European uh, industry. So we're going to talk about that. They've also got a proposal for a gas price cap that nobody seems happy with because they say the cap's too high. Wow. And it's not going to do anything. So they've been talking about that. Yeah, we're going to get caught up on uh, which elements of the UK are trying to become independent now. <laughs> What's going on there? You know, uh, did you see there was a there was a ruling by the British Supreme Court that's that mm-hmm. Scotland may not have another referendum yeah, on independence. Yeah, yeah. So we'll ask we'll ask our guest if uh, if I mean, uh, Nicola Sturgeon says she is going to abide by that ruling. Um, so, you know, we'll see if she's going to find a way to like have that. another referendum. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll talk also a little bit about uh, a subject we have returned to pretty frequently, and that's the Colorado River. But this time to talk about uh, a fight over or coming fight over tribal water rights, because actually tribes have the right to quite a lot of that water. In Arizona, tribal water rights account for 70 percent of Arizona's allotment from the Colorado River, but they don't take all that they are allotted. And part of the reason for that is infrastructure. So right. as you have these water infrastructure projects underway, like certainly a Navajo nation, they're in the midst of a, an infrastructure expansion to spread running water throughout the nation. Well, then they'll probably want to take more of it, sure. which is going to sh- set up even more showdowns uh, between states and tribal governments over the rights. And, you know, we already have a Supreme Court case that we're going to talk about uh, a little, I think, early next year between uh, about Navajo nation water rights. So, you know, right at a time when the water source is being squeezed, you have these uh, nations whose rights have historically been trampled on. Yes. Going, no, no, no. These are these are ours. You you recognize these are ours. And just because we hadn't been taking advantage of them in the past doesn't mean that we're not going to want to now. That's Um, that's exactly that'll be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah. Um, You know, I read yesterday that for the first time in living memory, Hawaii is undergoing a drought. And for the first time ever, Hawaii have the wettest spot on Earth also on the island of Kauai, the wettest spot on Earth, Earth. But for the very first time ever, um, federal authorities in Hawaii have issued a a forest fire warning that it's so dry on most of these islands that there's actually a danger of forest fires in Hawaii. It's just amazing to me. Can we talk a tiny bit more about FTX, too? Sure. My God. Uh, it's just every day there's there's a little bit more. Today, I just thought it was very funny that um, Sequoia Investment apologized for investing in FTX. Again, Sequoia is this venture yeah. capital company. Right. Uh, their total assets under management as of 2022, this is what Wikipedia is telling me, were $85 billion, right? So this is, this, these are big boys. Uh, and oh, yeah. yeah, they had to come out and they, they simultaneously apologized for backing FTX, but also defended their vetting process, which apparently includes investing money in a company who's who's never had an audit. Yes. Right. That's never had an audit. And again, whose management communicates with staff with with emojis <laughs> and who, again, oh. another tidbit we learned, Sam Bankman Fried, all the communications were like on one of those apps that deletes communications after a certain period of time. Right. So it's all gone. Yes. I mean, unless that stuff isn't really gone, but as far as I know, it is. Uh, it is just hilarious. Um, and also, a story in The Prospect points out that uh, back in March, a group of congressmen called the Blockchain 8 wrote a letter to uh, try to get the SEC to back off on its requests to crypto firms for, you know, information about what what they're doing. This was a bipartisan group for Democrats and for Republicans uh, who who wrote that uh, the the SEC's reporting requests to the crypto community are overburdensome, stifling innovation and don't feel particularly voluntary. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, Not a coincidence. Five of them got campaign donations from FTX employees. Not not in huge amounts, right? From like three thousand dollars to uh, a little under twelve thousand, but but still. You know, I'm wondering if if this kid who was the head of FDA, FTX, Sam Bankman Fried, Sam, Sam Bankman Fried, thank you. Yeah, I, I wonder if he's going to end up having to 
to pay the piper. What can he do? Doesn't have, I don't think, you know, uh, FTX has like, what, a billion and a half in assets right. still? Right. What, that's nothing compared to what no. is outstanding. I no. mean, they could sell all these properties, but they don't have billion all, dollar all properties. All of this sounds like he was just winging it all this time. Yeah. You know, it's like he didn't expect it to get as big as quickly as it did. Um, there were no, uh, there were no m- methods, it's, I guess, in place to- That is not to, an excuse. Sorry, not no, no, an excuse. I'm not yeah. saying as, okay. as an excuse. I think this is how it happened. Um, there were no controls in place to keep everything on the up and up. Yeah. And, uh, and greed got the better of him. He thought he was smarter than everybody else, which we've heard numerous times from people who knew him. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's going to have to go to jail over this. I mean, the thing that I find most interesting in this also is not that some dweeb, uh, you yeah. know, got an inch and took a mile. Right. It is why on earth all of these other supposedly serious, exactly. sober, respectable organizations yeah. these hedge fund managers decided and to investment back him. Firms. Why did that? That to me is a lot more interesting yeah. than, uh, you know, whiz kid runs amok, right? Totally Not agree. to like say that he shouldn't, he, of course, there should be consequences for his sure. behavior, but I think there should be, con- you know, like what is this? What's the story there? You just tricked everybody. And again, this is supposed to be your area. Some, uh, I guess we were talking to you compared it to Theranos. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a good comparison. But I think the limitation there is, well, I don't know. She she was talking about a technology. Henry Kissinger doesn't know about blood technology. He was one of her um, That's right. supporters. So you put, you just, like, give him a little presentation. You give a little presentation and you say, okay, all right. I believe your lab does that. You guys are, you guys are finance guys, yeah. right? This is, right. I know crypto is sort of a new thing, but it's not one, it's not that new. Yeah. People have been investing in it for a while. This is your area. That's what right. you didn't know that, that you shouldn't invest in a company that, you know, the, like, Maybe it should have undergone some formal scrutiny. I mean, one of the things Sequoia said is, uh, well, our guys looked at their balance sheet, so it was fine. Okay. Well, how many times do you bend in that rule? You know? I agree. I think that, I I think that is the real outrage and the very interesting story that I, I suspect we will not get, but I, I hope that we will. I hope so, too. I, I think that every investor, whether they did it because they thought it was a legitimate investment or they did it as part of a get-rich-quick scheme, every investor at least deserves an explanation. That is a pretty exciting story. All right. I think we can take a quick break here. We got some other stories to tell you, but they can they can wait. I want to get into uh, Europe versus America in the electric vehicle and, uh, and other issues. I think this is an interesting and pretty important story. Amen. So we'll get into that just on the other side of this break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're getting into a sort of an international grab bag. We've got uh, subsidies, a battle over subsidies between the EU and the United States. We've got accusations of election interference in Canada. Uh, we've got independence questions in Scotland. We've got what the heck is going on in Northern Ireland. We're going to talk about this uh, gas cap that the EU is going to be discussing tomorrow and whether anybody is happy about it at all. 
There's a lot to get into. And joining us for this conversation is John Ross. He's an author and economist, and he's a senior fellow of the Chongyang Institute at Renmin University of China. John, thanks for joining us. Pleased to be here. So the, the American press is really not paying a lot of attention to these uh, tensions over subsidies and competition between the United States and the EU. Uh, but European media is certainly watching. And Politico EU has a couple of stories just today on the issue. One noting that Germany and France have managed to put aside their differences to issue a joint statement vowing to explore industrial policy possibilities to safeguard European industries from what it considers discriminatory trade measures, both from Washington and also from China. Uh, the EU is also reporting, or sorry, Politico is also reporting that the EU is putting together a subsidy war chest on the fly to try to counter these measures in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act that are intended to spur investment in the United States, but which France in particular uh, and, and other EU countries consider, uh, you know, violations of agreements on fair competition. Uh, the fund is being called the European Sovereignty Fund, according to Politico sources, which also seems, you know, seems maybe meaningful. Um, the other thing that's happening is that as Europe tries to figure out how it can, uh, you know, maintain its industry in the face of these uh, incentives for businesses to invest in the United States, it is also facing much higher energy costs than the U.S. as a result of sanctions on Russia. And so protecting its industry is probably going to be even more difficult. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about, you know, just how just how serious these tensions are and, and what Europe might be able to do to try to protect its, especially its, its electric vehicle industry. Well, they're extremely serious. I mean, the United States has now created chaos in the European continent. Um, you've got... Um, the highest inflation for 40 years. Uh, you've got uh, a major war going on. The de the living standard of the, the countries, uh, the population of the countries is declining. I mean, the only way out of this situation is uh, for the United States to declare its um, independence from, I'm uh, sorry, for Europe to declare its independence from the United States. Uh, but unfortunately, this is not what the European <laughs> governments are doing. But it's at the moment, the United they've got chaos. Now to add to this, De facto, the United States has um, acknowledged with the um, with its subsidies that the whole sort of free market policy, which has been saying is you know gospel for the last forty years, is a load of rubbish uh -huh. and has collapsed. When you see the rise of new industries and you need a, a proper industrial policy, and so now it's decided to launch one, having uh, spent all its time trying to prevent Europe pursuing similar policies for the last forty years. So therefore, the Europe is in a total, um, total great mess at the present time, and um, the Inflation Act in the United States is just to add in, add into the, um, add into the chaos. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't sound very friendly. And I wonder if you think this will eventually affect our political relationship with the EU as a whole, with France individually, with Germany individually, especially if the United States is perceived as sort of trying to take advantage of Europe's weakness while it's down. Yes, but the problem is that the uh, European uh, capitalist classes, let's call them by their proper name, um, are not prepared to stand up uh, to the United States. So therefore, you have a big attack on the population. Now you have big negative indirect effects because the governments which are pursuing this are becoming drastically unpopular. For example, you know Germany, 
under pressure for the United States has just wrecked its economy. Yeah. Um, it's 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 having to pay higher prices for energy. Uh, it's supporting a war which is very uh, very damaging. It's now being attacked by the by U.S. subsidies. So um, the government in Germany, who is in government in Germany, is going to become extremely unpopular. And I could add a list of countries to that. I mean, if you take my own country, uh, it's not in such deep. Um, chaos as Germany at the present time, although it's it had a totally incompetent government, which made the situation even worse for about for a few weeks. But it's, um, you know, the, we're facing a 7% reduction in living standards in the last two years. That's by official projections. This is the biggest decline in living standards in Britain since um, since records began. And this is entirely a result of its subordination to the United States. I would love to say that I think there'll be a revolt by the governments in Europe against the United States, but I don't think there will be. What they will try to do is they'll try to find some way to alleviate some of the economic attacks by the United States. But unfortunately, while Europe needs independence from the United States, the existing governments in Europe are not going to follow that. Speaking of the UK, real quick, there were reports yesterday that that uh, blackouts might start, uh, I think, last night. And then it seemed like, uh, you know, then the reports went, oh, no, actually, it's going it's to be OK. But it seems like are, are blackouts still going to be expected? Like, are, is the government saying, look, yes, there will be blackouts over the winter if um, demand is high? I don't know whether there's going to be blackouts or not. I mean, I... It's possible. It's not, um, it, you know, it's not not something that was impossible. What is absolute certainty is the extraordinarily high prices, which are just creating a massive um, fall in living standards. As I say, we've we've seen nothing like it, not merely in you know living memory, but ever since records began. And you know, the population is suffering. The result of which is you've got the biggest strike wave in Britain for the last um, forty years taking place at the present time, and everybody knows internationally what total chaos the Tory government, um, Tory government was in. So, uh, in a certain sense, blackouts would just be added to the mess. I can't give you a tech. You'd have to be a technical have technical and factual information about whether we blackouts or not. But the situation is extremely unpleasant. All right. Well, let's talk about some of these uh, uh, other measures that the EU is uh, proposing to try to alleviate some of these conditions. Uh, What about this gas price cap? I guess the EU is going to debate that tomorrow. It doesn't seem like anybody's very uh, happy about it. So talk to us about what what they've proposed and what it's supposed to do. Well, they put a a price cap in at um, 275 euros or dollars because they're basically exactly the same now, right? Okay, (laughs) This is going to please nobody. It's so high that it means that the population confronts very big increases in uh, in prices anyway. And it's not going to please the energy companies because they can get more – they can, if the if the price goes above uh, two hundred and seventy five, then they can get more the money by selling the product somewhere else. So, and what the Europe, the only way to deal with this is really to have a massive windfall um, windfall tax on the energy companies, uh, which is something a meaningful one. The Europeans not are not prepared to do. I mean, they've got various nominal ones included in my country, but then not really enough to take money back back enough money. So. Therefore, the the energy companies are are dissatisfied uh, because they might be might attempts might be made to block them from selling their their products where they can get the highest price, and the population is dissatisfied because the 
um, the level is set so high that it's going to mean further increases for the population. So as you quite rightly put it in your earlier comments, and absolutely nobody apart from the European Commission <laughs> appears to be satisfied with this proposal. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, I guess the European Parliament did manage to, to do something yesterday and they designated Russia a state sponsor of terror. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, is that purely symbolic? Does it have any meaning beyond that? What, is, what should this say about also their, their priorities? Well, it, it doesn't it doesn't have a great practical meaning. Yeah. Um, it's um, but what it is, is it's a further sign of the fact that the Euro European, the, the the political establishment in Europe and et cetera, is getting itself deeper and deeper into a hole. What it, what it should be saying to get out of this message, this war's got to stop in Ukraine now. Uh, we are not going to buy expensive American uh, liquid gas, which has been foisted on us. Um, and um, we're going to stop the United States creating chaos in our continent. Uh, but unfortunately, instead, they're going themselves into a, digging themselves deeper into a hole, thinking that the... Um, Ukraine is uh, some, um, you know, not responsible for the war. It's not the situation in Ukraine. It's the expansion of NATO that's created the war. Uh, and also, we've got a situation whereby the um, our the inflation is not made in, in in by the war anyway. This idea that we've got to unite against Russia because it's created the inflation by the war in Ukraine is just absolute um, and it's very easy to show it. 95% of the price increases, for example, in the United States, took place before the Ukraine war started. It's not the problem what's causing the inflation. It's not the war in Ukraine. It's the economic policy which has been carried out in the United States. But unfortunately, instead of standing up uh, for themselves, the European governments, including the latest one by the European Parliament, are digging themselves deeper into the hole which they've got themselves. It is wild, too, because you must think, you know, you've, you've, you've still got your, you know, you got all your uh, your carts hitched to this particular horse. And yet again, there's a really betting on uh, a strong American sort of in economic future. And I, I continue to wonder why, you know, I mean, I guess you just you just you're in the hole. It's comfortable. You can't see your way out of it. And so you just, I guess, cross your fingers uh, that, you know, the, the United States is going to like that. All of the things that you are suffering through that benefit the United States are going to somehow come back around. Um, but I'm not sure I would bet on that. Oh, well, I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. The first is the United States has now got itself some very powerful enemies. Um, leave, not, leave aside the European Parliament, which is not one, but you've got it's in a confrontation with China. Right, China's an extremely powerful state. It's got the largest working class in the entire world. It's growing during the pandemic. It's grow. It's grown three times as fast as the United States. Um, it has a much higher level of investment than the United States. It's a very big, powerful enemy. Uh, the United States then also picked a fight with Russia. Russia again is a very, very powerful working class, uh, and it's. The United States, it understands perfectly well that the, the, what, the expansion of NATO is a deadly threat to Russia, and therefore the Russian people have shown themselves throughout history they're capable of great sacrifices. And then to add to this mess for the United States, Lula's just won the election in Brazil, uh, which, which adds a third factor into this situation. So we've, the United States has now got two problems. One is its economy is decelerating, slowing down, not merely the inflation, even the IMF, which tends to overestimate 
um, United States economic potential thinks it's, the U.S. economy is going to grow only 1% next year. Some people in the U.S. think there'll be a recession. It doesn't really matter because it's uh, China's economy is going to continue to grow three or four times as fast as the U.S. So the U.S.'s economy is slowing down and it's got itself three extremely powerful enemies at the present time. So I wouldn't bet on the situation in the United States at all. I think it's heading for really quite a mess. I think, incidentally, even even Biden's beginning to realise this a bit because, for example, he's he's tried to alter the rhetoric vis-a-vis China and Yellen was fairly open that she thinks it's uh, they, the United States needs some economic um, date, more detente, let's put it that way with um, China. So I think uh, I think they've, the United States has backed itself into a quite a difficult situation because it's one thing to get, uh, you know, the German chancellor out of the way and it's quite another to get uh, China, China, Russia and Brazil out of the way. This is very powerful forces. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask while we have you, John, uh, this isn't, you know, the news of the day, but uh, there still is no government in Northern Ireland. Uh, they've pushed the deadline back for forming a government. Uh, I'm curious w- what you think anyone expects to happen uh, between now and that next deadline that's going to make. I mean, the holdup seems to be that the, the DUP refuses to form a government with mm-hmm. Sinn Féin because they're unhappy with the, uh, the Northern Ireland protocol, but no one wants to change that. And so you know, th- there's the possibility that if, if a government can't be formed, they, they rehold an election. I don't think there's, you know, I haven't seen any suggestion that the outcome would be any different. Uh, and so I wonder if there's, you know, so, some anxiety about uh, the, the power sharing government there and how it's going to work if, if the DUP just, you know, digs in its heels and says, no, we want we want something that nobody wants uh, with regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol and we're just not going to play ball anymore. Well, it, but it's it's not merely the pro, the protocol. The reason the DUP won't enter in, into it. it's because when you know when the the artificial Northern Irish state or North North of Ireland state was set up, the assumption was that the unionists would always have a majority, and the unionists with dominant political force. The British government assumed that when it introduced power sharing, that the majority would actually be always held by the unionists. But they're in such a mess because their policies, they're so divided and split that um, they don't have a majority and are are not going to have a majority if you have a new election. That's one of the reasons the British government didn't hold a new election, because it's got the right now under the settlement to hold a new election, didn't dare do so because the Sinn Féin will win it again. Yeah, so they're in the right mess. Um, What they hope, the British government is desperately hoping, is... um, that the Euro- European Union will back down, which is not going to, because it would just m- make the North of Ireland a smuggler's paradise. It means that you could get goods into the North of Ireland and then take them across the border into the, into the South of Ireland and then enter the EU with no border, no 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 customs controls, no quality controls, no nothing. So it would it'd just turn it into a sort of gigantic smuggler's enclave in the, into, in the North of Ireland. And secondly, one of the few things which is progressive, which uh, the United States is involved in at the present time, is particularly because of the very large historical links of the Irish population of Irish descent in the United States. It's not inclined to give in to these mad unionists either. So the unionists are in a bit of a mess in the North of Ireland, which um, they, you know, they back themselves into. 
Um, and so the British government is sort of hoping against hope that something will turn up, but I don't think it's going to. So there, this is going, this is going, this is going to run and run. They don't know what to do. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of a lot of just crossing fingers and uh, kicking the ball down the road. Uh, the other question is about Scotland. Uh, Scotland had hoped to hold a new independence referendum, but the UK Supreme Court ruled today that it doesn't have the power to do that without the consent of the UK government in London. That government is refusing to give consent, saying that question was answered in the referendum you had in 2014. Uh, We think you should just give it a rest. Uh, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has argued that she has a mandate for the new referendum because a majority of independent supporting MPs have been voted into parliament. Uh, she says she's going to abide by the court's decision. I wonder I wonder if you think this this ends this process for now or or if we will actually see another uh, independence referendum in Scotland before too long. Well, I don't think we're going to have an independence referendum, but so but of course what it's doing is further further alienating the Scottish population. Everyone agrees uh well no except a small fringe of the conservative party you know the scottish people it's it's a nation it it joined britain voluntarily it was never conquered it decided to join and therefore it's got the right to leave at, it's true at the last referendum it voted not to leave but a lot of a lot has changed not not by a very big margin but a lot's changed since then in particular Britain has left the EU and Scotland voted by a massive majority to remain within the EU. So the, there's a very simple way. Sturgeon's quite right. You should hold a referendum on it and see whether the Scottish population think that the situation's changed enough that they're going to, this time they're going to vote for independence. So instead, what the court is doing, the court is intervening because it thinks that it's a really quite a high chance that the Scottish people this time would vote for independence. So instead of saying, fine, okay, that's the, you know, if that's what the Scottish people want, that's what they get. Um, is stepping in to block this by undemocratic means. But it's only going to increase the antagonism of the people in Scotland against the British government. And they pretty much don't like the British government anyway. Finally, I I wanted to ask you a couple of questions uh, about China and relations with China. First, there are these allegations that China is interfering in Canadian elections. Uh, There have been media reports about China funding candidates in the 2019 elections. Uh, Justin Trudeau just this week said, I have not been briefed on anything of the sort. We don't know of anything like that. So, you know, I don't know if you can say he's dismissing these allegations. But there was also the little um, chat Trudeau and Xi Jinping had on the sidelines of the G20 uh, where, you know, Trudeau was sort of finger wagging about interfering with Canadian citizens and then uh, got a pretty public dressing down from Xi Jinping. Can you can you tell us what is this uh, scandal in Canada with regard to Chinese interference? Oh, well, this is absolute complete fantasy. Ch- China's policy is very simple. China's got the world's most rapidly growing uh, economic economy. It it thinks it's becoming quite right. It's increasingly attractive to countries, particularly in the global south, but also others, because its own economy is going to be very successful. And it's showing a, a better way forward. It doesn't. It's totally counterproductive to be interfering in the internal elections of another country. It doesn't need to do it. Uh, it will create a lot of antagonism if it, you know if you get caught out in such matters, which which you tend to. So this is absolutely the purest which is going on. Presumably Trudeau's feeling a bit unpopular in Canada and wants um, 
wants to discuss something else, I assume. But I mean, it's it's this absolute complete nonsense. The That's not China's strategy at all. China's strategy is just to be the most successful economy in the world. It's not to be spend its time interfering and fiddling around in other countries' elections. Finally, I wanted to ask about these reports of uh, protests at Apple's main iPhone making plant in China. The protests seem to be both about um, uh, unpaid wages or bonuses, but also about COVID policy. And they come, as we've seen, uh, reporting for a couple of weeks about how China's COVID policies are evolving. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what what you could tell us about those protests and also what you can tell us about, uh, you know, the, the future of China's COVID policy. Well, as, as regards the situation in Foxconn, that's this is not the first time there's been protests there. I mean, they've had very serious problems of labour dispute because it's a, you know, it's a capitalist country, uh, capitalist firm which is um, trying to make as much profit as it can in in the in the situation in China. So this is very far from being the first protests. It, it, it interrelates with the uh, COVID policy because China pursues a lockdown policy. But if you're going to lock the population down, then you've got to make sure that they're properly supplied. You've got to get food supplies, wages, subsidies and other things. And doubtless Foxconn doesn't want to do that. So therefore, that's the reason why the Foxconn's protests against Foxconn management have got tied up with the the question of the um, COVID policy. It's not the, you know, there's no no great surprise about that because it's not like the situation you've got in the big um, Chinese cities where the population is organised and you have committees which ensure that they get food supplies and other things during the lockdowns. It's a bit of a mess. I mean, because it's a you know it's a company and it's a company that's trying to make profits, not trying to defend the uh, Chinese population. So. That that's the cause of what's going on there. And what about China's COVID policies? Are they are they changing? Well, they're becoming smarter in the sense that they're more quickly reacting to the situation, um, and um, they're trying therefore to limit the amounts of um, lockdowns, etc. Because the because uh, uh, the epidemic spreads exponentially, the quicker you can get in and deal with the situation, the the more rapidly you can deal with. I mean, in Britain. When we had our first lockdown, we 95% of the cases occurred in the 10 days before the lockdown because the, the government didn't act quickly enough. So China China's doing that, but it's not it's not changing from the fundamental dynamic um, zero COVID policy. Why, why should it? I mean, there'd be, there'd be millions of Chinese dead if it did. I mean, if China had the same death rate as it happened in the United States, there'd be 4.7 million people dead. So, you know, the Chinese government has saved literally millions of lives um, in China. So it's not going to abandon this policy. I, and um, it would be a disaster if it did. It'd be, you know, what what what, what the Western is demanding is that millions of Chinese people die so that their companies in the West can continue to make profit, to which the government of China has quite rightly said, no, thank you. That was author and economist John Ross. John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. That's OK. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back, talk about what's going on in Turkey, Iraq, Syria. Oh, yeah. And some other places. All that coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome 
back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. There have been several interesting and important developments overseas in the past 24 hours or so. First, there was a coordinated attack this morning in Jerusalem with bombs being detonated at two bus stations in the mostly Jewish western part of the city. A 16-year-old Canadian yeshiva student was killed and a half a dozen people were injured. It was the first deadly attack on Jews in Jerusalem in years. Turkey is continuing its attacks on Kurds in both Iraq and Syria, even as it expresses support for ceasefire talks with the Kurds to take place in Russia. And Iran is using the nationwide uprising as an excuse to attack its own Kurds. One person was killed in an IRGC rocket attack on the Kurdish town of Kusinjak. And finally, former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has gone to court to allege that he was the rightful winner of the recent election there. Here in the United States, former White House advisor Steve Bannon, whom I constantly mistake for a homeless person, took to his daily show to urge Brazilians to take to the streets because, quote, your election was stolen from you, unquote. It actually wasn't. Brazilian politicians fear that Bannon's entreaties will stir up violence across Brazil. We're joined by Nicholas Davies. Nick is an independent journalist, a researcher with Code Pink, and the author of the book Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq, and the book Making War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, which he wrote along with Medea Benjamin. Nick, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Thanks so much for joining us, Nick. I wanted to begin with the violence that we saw in Jerusalem this morning. I was in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, and I mentioned on the show when I was there that I had witnessed a sectarian act of violence when when, uh, I was walking around uh, the old city one day. There was tension in the air a couple of weeks ago, partly because of the election and partly because there appears to be just no hope for Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. Now that Benjamin Netanyahu will be prime minister again, and an avowed racist by the name of Itamar Ben-Gavir will probably be defense minister, do you see violence worsening in the coming months? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that that's inevitable. I mean, the, the, only, the only question really will be how, how bad will it get? Will right. we end up with uh, another massive bombing campaign killing thousands in Gaza? And that and that that is entirely possible. I, I think actually the there's there's something that these different stories um we're covering today have in common. And that is really um that in, in this post colonial world we're living in, any kind of supposed resolution to international problems that denies self determination to any national or ethnic group simply sets the stage for future conflict. And as long as the powers that be in the world, the most powerful countries, keep trying to impose those kind of quote-unquote solutions, which they're not, um, then, you know, this is simply a recipe for endless conflict. And, uh, and of course, the reason why this, this springs to my mind is that yesterday I was Medea and I were doing an interview about our book, and we were talking about uh, possible uh, solutions and negotiations on Ukraine, and the fact that unless the uh, people of Donbass and the people of Crimea are 
also able to have self-determination, uh, that no solution will will really stick or be permanent. Um, and it, so this is so this is you know I, I think where, wherever we look in the world we see uh, the, the, these national groups or ethnic groups who who are marginalized and and whose whose fate is determined by the major powers of the world to suit their own interests, just as the U.S. and U.K. undermined a peace agreement in Ukraine in April, which is uh, widely known in diplomatic, academic, and, uh, um, and intelligence circles, even as it remains a sort of kind of secret or or even a conspiracy theory that most Americans, most of the American and British public whose governments uh, torpedoed that, that uh, nascent peace agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, this is, this is, this is really, uh, really quite a, a, you know, radical change that needs to happen in, in the way the world approaches these, all of these situations, because, but they, but they do have this common pattern to them. And perhaps this is something that the UN should, should really take up as a, as a global problem. Right. Um, that, that it needs a solution to. I'm unsure, Nick, what to make of Turkey's strategy against the Kurds right now in Iraq and Syria. The Kurds have, I'm sorry, the Turks have long maintained that Iraq's Kurds have given safe haven inside Iraqi territory to Turkey's Kurds. I can tell you that that's just not true. Iraq's Kurds don't fully control the frontier, and they can't stop Turkish Kurds from setting up camp just on the Iraqi side of the border. And in Syria, the Turks appear to just want to kill as many Kurds there as, as possible. Uh, the U.S. and Turkey are on different sides in that conflict. But what do you think Turkey's long-term strategy is here? It can't be just to kill as many people as, as possible, can it? Well, I, again, we come to the, the common factors here because, in fact, the Turkey's way of dealing with its quote-unquote Kurdish problem right. is very similar to Israel's way of dealing with its quote-unquote Palestinian it is. problem, which, as you say, is just to periodically uh, use the, uh, the weapons that the United States keeps killing both of them, and in fact, in great extent, giving the weapons to um, to Israel. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's the same planes, the F-15s and the F-16s, Bombing Gaza and and bombing uh, and bombing the Kurds uh, uh, all along to Turkey's border, you know, into Iraq, into into Syria, and um, the, yeah, this is this is just not an acceptable situation, and it's it's not going to go. You know, the Israeli and Turkish responses to to these situations um completely ineffective and and, and amount as you say to just to just uh, endless periodic killing. I think I think it was Netanyahu who coined the phrase mowing the grass that you know right. oh, every now and then we just have to go and bomb them. And right. uh, that should be unacceptable. 
to the whole world, and that the United States has an insidious role in both of these situations, um, and um, completely failed as, as any sort of honest broker or mediator between Israel and Palestine. And really, um, these, uh, these, I mean, all these actions clearly are in clear violation of international law and the UN Charter. Uh, war, you know, just horrendous war crimes, really. So um, the world needs to needs to um, be clear about that and and find a way to to let Turkey and Israel know that these policies are unacceptable. Indeed, and why? In response to the Israel, I'm sorry, Israel, the Istanbul bombing, do you think the Turks elected to go after the Kurds rather than after the more logical perpetrator ISIS? The PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, has a longstanding policy of not attacking civilians. The Istanbul bombing had all the hallmarks of an ISIS attack. And indeed, several years ago, ISIS hit Istanbul in exactly the same way as Istanbul was hit a couple of weeks ago. Do you think the Turks just decided to use this as an excuse to begin bombing their own Kurds again? Yes. Uh, I mean, this is how powerful countries use terrorism and mm. their and the people's fear of terrorism to, um, to, to justify their own war crimes. And, um, you know, and, and we live in a country that, that uses terrorism in exactly that way. Um, uh, yeah, talking about the United States, of course, and um, so uh, and and in fact, uh, the, the the U.S. has has done the same in Iraq, uh, as as um, you know the, the the very unpopular U.S. bases there for uh, over the years have 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 been attacked by. Both Islamic State and and also by um, Iranian-backed, or well, not exactly under the control of Iran, but but uh, Iran supporting uh, militias um, that that actually grew out of the, the the war against ISIS, and and so yes, who the U.S. blames attacks on on U.S. bases on. Is it is a matter of convenience, really? You know, to, is our is our current number one enemy in Iraq the the Iranian, you know, pro Iranian militias, or or is it ISIS? Who we blame it on this time? Right. And and so uh, and and of course, when it comes to ISIS, both, both the U.S. and Turkey have have used uh, the um. The, the Syrian jihadis, the Al Nusra Front, and, and the, the Al Qaeda allies, or, or, or groups that were really were part of Al Qaeda, that that, um, that the U.S. and Turkey collaborated to use against the Syrian government, starting in 2011, uh, and and out of which you know, out of which bloody bloody civil. <laughs> If you could call it a civil mm-hmm, war mm-hmm. or a covert proxy war, um, out of which grew ISIS, the Islamic State, and 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 so in northern Syria, uh, Turkey is effectively allied with all those groups, including the Islamic Islamic State, uh, in its you know low grade periodic mowing the grass war 
against the Kurds. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, ah, uh, you know, this this really this really highlights the position of the Kurds in 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 four different countries: in Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, as a group that is not going to go away, is not going to simply accept that, that you know, that, that they can be bombed into submission. Um, and so, again, it is a group that, that needs uh, to be treated differently mm-hmm. in the world and to be given uh, some form of self-determination and where whether... The, you know whether the different groups in each country need to be, you know, permitted to have a, a sort of multinational confederation of some kind. I, I, you know, I don't know, but the the they they are not going to be quiet no. until they get uh, better self determination and better recognition in today's world. Oh, I think you're right. Uh, and and not just Turkey's Kurds, but uh, Iraq, Syria's, and Iran's as well. And speaking of Iran, tell us what's going on in Iran. Western news reports indicate that the Iranians are taking advantage of the current political upheaval to hit the Kurds. But there are other reports, mostly in the Middle Eastern press, saying that the Kurds are provoking Tehran and that the central government is simply responding to those provocations. Do you have any information on what's happening in, in northwestern Iran? I don't have any inside information on that. I, I see the same report. You you probably have more inside information than I do. <laughs> but I, I mean, uh, you, you know, I, I, it, it's it's very likely that the U.S. and Israel are involved to some extent in stoking unrest. At the same time, uh, Iran could be, you know. Like these other countries we're talking about, deals with periodic mass unrest amongst its people. Uh, we, you know, we, it cannot suppress forever. As far as the U.S. and Israeli role, I, I mean, um, I, I think we talked the last time I was on your show about uh, U.S. B fifty two flying across the Middle East. That's right, from, from England. Uh, accompanied by Israeli and Saudi warplanes. I mean, not Israeli and Saudi-built warplanes. These are all U.S.-built warplanes we're talking about. But really as a sort of threat to Iran that, that um, you know, okay, well, that's it for the JCPOA, and here's, you know, here's, here's what you could end up facing instead. And, and um, but then it, 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 it's, yeah, there certainly seems to be a, a little bit of a coincidence here that just when the JCPOA seems finally to have been buried in its grave, um, that all of a sudden we have you know mass, another wave of, of mass uh, unrest in Iran, which brutally suppressed, and um, and of course and involving the Kurds, who who the U.S. has used. Dreadfully, cynically. Oh yeah. Um, over since, the years, since the uh, end of the Second World War, in in all in all these, yes, absolutely. And as as, as Henry Kissinger testified to Congress in the nineteen seventies, after the U.S. abandoned the the Kurds in Iraq, 
to um to try to move things uh, um attack. Uh, and uh, and um uh Henry Kissinger's comment to a congressional committee was that covert action should not be confused with missionary activity. <laughs> In other words, no, we you know, we're not trying to help the Kurds. We're trying to undermine the Iraqi government. And, right. You know, so don't please don't misunderstand what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I I dealt very closely with Iraqi Kurdish leaders when I was at the uh at the CIA and it, one of the things that struck me was how much those Kurdish leaders and I'm talking about people like Masoud Barzani and Jalal Talabani they just loved the United States and and wanted a long-term partnership with the United States and we were just using them that's really all it came down to well we are going to have to leave it there I'm sorry to say we were very happy to be joined by Nick Davies. Nick is an independent journalist, a researcher with Code Pink, and the author of several books, including Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq, and the book Making War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, along with Medea Benjamin. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We will take a short break and come right back, so stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Just days after a gunman in Colorado murdered five people at a nightclub there, a Walmart manager in Tidewater, Virginia, opened fire last night in the store's break room, killing six co-workers before then turning the gun on himself. According to the Associated Press, there have been, get this, 35 mass shootings so far this year the deadliest year ever. A mass shooting is one in which there are three or more victims in a single incident. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously yesterday that former President Donald Trump must turn over his income tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee, which has been investigating allegations that Trump evaded corporate taxes. We'll see what he does next. Incoming Republican House leader Kevin McCarthy yesterday called on Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas to either resign or to be impeached. McCarthy says that Mayorkas has failed to secure the southern border and must pay the price. Meanwhile, though, I shouldn't even say though. I'm going to just say meanwhile. Yep. Democratic Senator Mark Kelly said yesterday that the Democratic Party is, quote, clueless, unquote, when it comes to the border. Maybe he can educate us. Mm -hmm. Maybe become a leader on these kinds of issues. Yeah, sure. Republicans in the House also are saying that they're planning impeachment hearings for President Biden, as well as hearings on the Hunter Biden laptop. We know. And Georgia Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker is finding himself in even deeper trouble this week. It turns out that he took a tax deduction on his house in Texas, where he listed his primary residence, despite the fact that he's running for the Senate from Georgia, not Texas. He has some explaining to do to the IRS. And the second woman who said that Walker demanded that she seek an abortion after he impregnated her has repeated the allegation, saying that Walker is lying when he says that the source 
sorry, that the story is untrue. And I noticed just minutes ago, she hired Gloria Allred. So this is not going away. Mm -hmm. Wow. The country is currently in the midst of an odd shortage of Tylenol, antiviral medication, and antibiotics amidst what doctors are calling a triple-demic. That is, a very difficult season of the flu, RSV, and COVID. And finally, it seems like something is amiss at WikiLeaks. Only 3,000 of its 10 million documents are available. None of the subpages are working. And even going to the main website ends with a 502 error message. It's unclear why this is happening, and the organization has not yet made a statement. We're joined by Ted Rawl. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Welcome back. As always, Ted, good to have you. Likewise. Great to be here, John. Thank you, sir. Let's begin with this shooting in Virginia, Ted. The manager of the Walmart opened fire on his coworkers, killing six. I, I hate to even say this, and I'm willing to take some heat, but nobody's going to remember this shooting in six months, right? Because this kind of thing happens all the time in America. What they likely will remember is that this is the deadliest year of mass shootings in American history. Why do you think that is? Is it mental illness? Is it lax gun laws? Is it the after effects of COVID? Is it a combination of several or all of them? Why, why is this happening right now? Well, uh, thanks, John. I mean, I, I'm not a psychologist, but my, you know, from, as a student of history, uh, one of the things that I uh, know to, took note of when I was reading up on the Spanish flu, as many of us did when the pandemic began, was that the aftermath of, in the, of, the, of the flu, which pretty much the pandemic ended in 1920, um, people were traumatized by this. And there was all sorts of random violence uh, throughout the early 1920s. Um, and the theory at the time, and you know, psychiatry was a really modern science then, was that people had basically freaked out during the pandemic. I mean, one thing that I found really interesting was the word quarantine is French, and it means it comes from quarante. It means forty. And during the Middle Ages, during the Black Plague, uh, they basically sort of determined that forty days was the longest amount of time. Not that you needed to control an outbreak. But it was the longest amount of time that you could get people to stay indoors in lockdown without them losing their minds. So, you know, people pretty much, uh, you know, I think human nature hasn't changed since the 1300s. And, uh, you know, we, we were asked to stay in lockdown far longer than that. And I, so I think people have freaked out. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't sort of take note of the fact that this is an unusual shooting in that usually it's a disgruntled worker right and who does these workplace shootings you know you know not now it's the boss is, is killing you i mean you know usually it's someone who got fired by the boss who's coming gunning for the boss so it's very strange um it's an unusual uh, occurrence who knows what happened there but uh you know yeah i mean look the country's a wash in guns if it wasn't a wash in guns uh people could come and yeah. certainly kill people using other means but it wouldn't be as easy and if they weren't, it wasn't a wash in high-powered guns. It would the you know the, the body count would be lower. Uh, Americans are kind of losing their minds, not just because of COVID, but I think there's all sorts of uh, contributing factors to rising alienation. You know the, the dysfunction. 
basically we have a society that can't really solve people or people's problems and doesn't even pretend like it can anymore. Yeah. So, you know, you expose 330 million people to extraordinary stress. You know, it's not surprising that every day or two, one of them freaks out. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the truth? Um, after years of litigation, Ted, Donald Trump will finally be forced to turn his tax returns over to the House Ways and Means Committee. To tell you the truth, I don't exactly remember why it was that this whole thing started in the first place. It it had something to do with allegations of tax fraud. At least that's what the committee is saying. But control of the committee goes to the Republicans in the first week of January. Does any of this really matter anymore? Short answer, no. Um, this, uh, this investigation is dead on arrival. Um, you know, I guess uh, Democrats will want to get a look at Trump's taxes. I mean, I strongly suspect that that's always been what this is about. We all suspect yeah. that Trump isn't as rich as he says. Right. And um, there's been a lot of credible media research to that ex- to that effect. And I think this is kind of like fighting 2015 and 2016 all over again for the Democrats. You know, Trump's argument was the traditional, I'm a successful businessman and I can do for America what I did for my company. Well, let's see what you did for your companies. And we have a pretty good idea that, you know, he's uh, exaggerating what he did for his company. So uh, I think this is more, it's a fishing expedition. I don't really, I think Trump is already discredited. I don't think anyone really believes that he's as rich as he says. I think he he faked it until he made it. Uh, And, you know, I don't think it matters. I don't think Trump's chances uh, at at getting the uh, nomination again uh, will hinge on this. It's completely like, you know, it's it's like the Democrats are celebrating just like they're celebrating the midterms. Um, What are you celebrating? You lost. Exactly. But, you know, that's that's what's going on here. (laughs) And they are. They are celebrating. The Republicans have been making a lot of noise about impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Now Kevin McCarthy is saying that Mayorkas should either resign or be impeached. Of course, a trial in the Senate will go nowhere. This is all about the border, apparently. What is it that the Republicans want to accomplish, do you think? Is this about forcing the Trump era border policy? Um, I think this is red meat for the base. Uh, you know, right. I watch a lot of Fox News. And one of it's, you know, there's 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 issues that uh, Fox News talks about that, you know, other people, liberals care about, too, like inflation. Mm-hmm. But uh, they they also but they spend a lot of time talking about the border and, you know, whether whatever you think about it, the fact is that Democrats just don't care and swing voters don't really care. And it's not high on the list of what, uh, you know, the average American voter cares about. So I think this is about like, uh, you know, let's let's own the libs. Uh, you know, let's I mean, you know, the whole border. I mean, there is a border crisis, but it's been completely, uh, you know, misdescribed. I mean, basically, yeah, we have tons of people crossing, but they're not crossing illegally. These are people who are presenting themselves. I was watching Fox yesterday. They said, oh, look, there's 300 people. This huge con- uh, c- convoy showed up at the Texas border. They presented themselves. That's the key word. They presented themselves and applied for asylum, which is the legal process yeah, under American law. Exactly. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. That's what they're supposed to do. And even if you you know look at the helicopter footage, 
these people are all lined up. Like, you know, frankly, it's far more chaotic to get into a movie here in New York than it is than the way those people were behaving. They were all lined up extremely compliantly, uh, following directions. So, it, you know, it's it's certainly true that we have this flow of, of refugee applications at the southern border. But there's no way to control that or stop that unless we completely alter our refugee policy. So it's it's kind of just a big lie. I think this is um, I don't think they're really going to impeach him. I think this would be a if they do, uh, it's going to be one of those things like shutting down the government that just bites them back. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, the Republicans are also talking, Ted, about uh, well, obviously, they're talking about uh, uh, Biden, but they're talking about about subpoenaing Dr. Fauci to come and testify. He's retiring at the end of December, which is the week before the Republicans take control in the House. Why? Why would they do that? Is that more attraction to their to their base, red meat for their base? I, I get the threats to to investigate Hunter Biden. I, I don't think most Americans care one way or the other about Hunter Biden unless there's a direct tie between Hunter Biden and corruption on the part of Joe Biden. But do you think these investigate investigations will help or hurt the Republicans? Uh, the Hunter Biden thing is going to help them uh, because there's a lot of smoke there. And I'm pretty damn sure there's a lot of fire there, too. Um, so once they start digging and picking away at that thing, uh, there's no limit at how far it could go. It could bring down the president. The other stuff, I don't think, um, you know, there's I don't think there's any particular advantage to them. Um, the other stuff is kind of like um, small time. Yeah. And it may be that those are just it's a it's a strategy to distract Democrats. So, you know, it's the rope a dope. Oh, look over yeah. here. I'm hitting you here. Oh, wait, but there's this. But wait, there's more like the Ginsu knives. But I, I think this is I mean, as I size it up, the in the same way that the New York uh, business fraud charges uh, were always the existential threat to Trump, the existential thro- uh, threat to President Biden is clearly the Hunter Biden laptop story. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right about Hunter Biden. And, you know, that leads me to another question, too. Last week, uh, Nancy Pelosi announced that she was not going to stand as the Democratic leader in the House. Steny Hoyer stepped aside as well. Jim Clyburn took a junior position to allow a younger Democrat to take over the conference chairmanship. Uh, they stepped aside for this new generation of young Democratic leaders. It only stands to reason to me that Joe Biden, already being the oldest president in American history, he, he's just now turned 80 years old, would also step aside after a term. But we know that he told Barack Obama that he was running for reelection. He says he spoke to his wife about it and they decided that he would run for reelection. He's told elected Democrats in the House and the Senate that he's running for reelection. Why? He's the weakest candidate that that the Democrats could nominate against any Republican. My guess is the only Republican Biden could beat would be Donald Trump. It would be a reverse of 2016. But why not step aside and, you know, you just declare victory and go home and and then let younger leaders begin their own tenure. Why not? Well, not to mention, even if we wanted to argue for the sake just theoretically. Um, that Joe Biden was very sharp physically, which I think he is physically in pretty good shape, uh, mm-hmm. but and also mentally, which I don't believe. Um, the it, let's just say for the sake of argument that he was perfect. 
um, as Trump would say. You know, a lot of stuff happens to people when they age between the ages of 80 and 86. Yeah. And uh, my mother was very sharp at 80, very sharp. Uh, you know, she by, by the time she was 83, she had full-blown Alzheimer's. She died when she was 84. Oh. So, I mean, it's like things, I mean, any gerontologist will say, you know, that that's that's a fraught time. So yes. every every day is tough. I mean, I I think what this is about is ego on the part of Biden. Mm-hmm. I think it's and uh it, you know, also sort of feeling the Democrats feel like they dodged this big midterm bullet. And, you know, that's true, they did. Uh, but they still got struck by another bullet. And, you know, they lost the house. Yeah, that, that matters. And look, I I think we're going to be having a different conversation when the Hunter Biden stuff starts coming out. Um, you know, CBS News two days ago uh, announced they had authenticated the laptop contents. I um, saw that. The, and the New York Post went crazy over it. Well, they're right. I yeah. mean, the New York Post was treated like crap. Uh, by Twitter and Facebook and the mainstream media. And, uh, you know, and they were basically told, la, 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 we can't hear you. And it's like they knew it was true. And so they have every right to crow right now. Um, But uh, it's, yeah, I I think it really in the end comes down to the fact that there's no deep bench for the Democrats. I mean, nobody I can talk, I talk to can possibly say who would be the Democrat, would yeah. be a solid right. Democratic candidate other than Biden. It's not Vice President Harris. Um, you know, it's not Governor Newsom of California. No. There's too many people who are just, you know, they just, for one reason or another, they can't do it. So Biden might be telling himself, look, uh, you know, I'm the guy because there's no one else. And he may not be entirely wrong, although, of course, that's his fault that there's nobody else. And, uh, you know, he, he could, for example, have groomed Harris and uh, and tried to promote her. Right. Or the, the DNC could have reached out to Cory Booker or someone else and said, like, look, we're teeing you up for 2024. They didn't do that. So now here we are with this, uh, you know, octogenarian. It's insane. Uh, yeah, I got to ask you about something that uh, Matt Gates said yesterday that was so surprising to me. He said that he has, what was it, six? Solid no votes on uh, on McCarthy as speaker. He said not just in the Republican conference, but in the overall vote for speaker of the House. So McCarthy will not get the 218 votes required to become speaker. He said it's solid. It's done. So what he's proposing is that. um Oh, what's her face? Become speaker of the House. Oh, my God. I'm having a mental blank now. I don't from, from Hawaii, Hawaii, the Democrat from Hawaii. That ran for president. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard. Thank you. Oh, they're going to pull her in from the outside. They're going to pull her in from the outside. So when I read this yesterday, I called Bruce Fine. You know Bruce Fine, eminent uh, legal scholar. And he told me that even though the Constitution is clear that the House of Representatives, the membership of the House of Representatives chooses the speaker, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the speaker has to be a member of the House of Representatives. Although it has never happened in American history ever. So Tulsi Gabbard, being the MAGA opportunist that she's become in the last uh, four weeks or so, said that she would be delighted to be considered as Speaker of the House. Now, my first question to you is, what are the chances that these Republicans are going to not come around and fall into line? 
Certainly, McCarthy's got to be threatening their their committee assignments right now, threatening their ability to to raise money for reelection. So what are the chances that they're not going to come around? And in the event that they don't come around, can you see a scenario where Tulsi Gabbard or some outsider somewhere ends up being Speaker of the House? I am always fascinated by scenarios like this. But to, to answer your question in order, uh, I don't I think there's maybe a 15 percent chance that that uh, McCarthy won't be able by hook or by crook to uh, to, to sway the, 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 the missing votes. I mean, he's so close. I mean, it's kind of absurd to be like, well, I needed 218. I had to, I had 212. No right. go. Um, so obviously he can also bribe, you know, maybe not with cash, but he can, can bribe. Yeah. So he can offer inducements to the holdouts and, you know, everybody has their price. And in Washington, that price is often not very high. Um, but let's just say they, that, that, you know, he fails. Um, I don't know that they would be, you know, that a lot of conservative magatites really trust Tulsi Gabbard, who, you know, until, you know, a minute ago was mm-hmm. a Democratic Socialist Bernie supporter. Like what? Uh, I I do love the theoretical idea that it could be someone from the outside. I love those kinds I of things. You know, like for example, <laughs> like you know, like you know, people don't know. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go to law school to be a lawyer. You just have to par- pass the bar that, that's association. Right. You don't even have, need a high school degree. Um, you know, and, and people have, and, uh, that's pretty awesome. So I love those kind of like outsider things. Um, and it would be cool. Um, I also quite frankly think that temperamentally, she just doesn't have what it takes for the job. I mean, it's like you need, uh, you know, you need to be able to wrangle those votes and, uh, yeah. she just doesn't, you know, that that's not her deal. She just wants to go on Fox and talk. Yeah. I, I liked her a lot and I, I would have considered considered voting for her uh, for president had she remained in the race. But when she dropped out of the Democratic Party and became an independent, which was fine with me because I'm not a I'm not a Democrat either. I'm an independent. But when she just endorsed every election denying MAGA Republican that was running in a close race, that did it for me. Now, with that said, I agree with you. She's not she's not a politico where. It would be second nature to her to just wreck somebody's career if they didn't vote the way they were supposed to vote. I just can't see her being the heavy in a in a position like this. It it doesn't make yeah, sense to me. It's not it's not her yeah, it's not her bag. No. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure McCarthy will nail this down. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a shot across his bow. Um and but he is the heavy. And uh, yeah, he maybe is. it's what he does. So, so, yeah, he'll I think he'll 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 get over the finish line. Ted, the country is facing a shortage of antiviral drugs, antibiotics, especially amoxicillin. Nobody has amoxicillin. Even Tylenol is uh, is missing from the shelves. It's the worst flu season in 13 years. There's RSV and COVID spreading. Is this a supply chain problem? Is it a manufacturing problem? Or is this just bad planning? Uh, I'm going to say all of the above. Certainly mm-hmm. bad planning. Uh, you know, I'm, while you were saying that, I was like, oh, my God, I'm glad that I was went to Mexico last year and loaded up on amoxicillin. <laughs> no, uh, you know, no, it's cheap there. And yep. you don't need a you don't need a prescription. You just walk into a pharmacy. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's the third worldification of America, it is. right, where you can't get very basic things 
that we should all be able to get. Um, and it just doesn't feel right. I mean, if you think about the brief against the Soviet Union during the Cold War, it was like, oh, those poor people. They don't. The, 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 the shelves are bare at the supermarket. There's lines for toilet paper. You know, during the pandemic, our shelves were bare. You yeah. know, some of them still are. Yeah. We couldn't get toilet paper. I mean, it's it's literally like when if you have a history of looking down on other countries uh, and say based on certain metrics, and then you start to experience those metrics yourself in your society, you know, people who are old enough to remember start to think, oh, my God, here we go, <laughs> you know, down the drain. And that's what it feels like. And I think it's feeding into a lot of the political anxiety and anger yeah. that we're seeing, particularly particularly on the right, but you know, on both sides. I think you're right. Uh, let's see, WikiLeaks. I'm actually worried about this. I, I've been while while we've been doing the show, I've been going back and forth to Twitter to see what people are saying about it. Um, WikiLeaks, for all intents and purposes, is down right now. Only three thousand of its ten million documents are available. It's very difficult even to get on the website. WikiLeaks has been having a lot of problems, like funding, denial of service attacks, hacking by intelligence services. I would have to assume it's either the CIA, the FBI, NSA that's uh, that's leading this. Tell me that this isn't the beginning of the end for WikiLeaks, or are they just being overwhelmed right now? You know, it's so hard to tell, right? I mean, the other day, my own personal website went down, and my webmaster said, you know, it got up, went under the hood and said, oh, you know, you have, uh, the, they updated the blah, blah cache. And now you, you know, I went and sh- fixed the code. And I said, is that something I could have done? And he's like, not really. And so, you know, it's, it's mysterious what happens under the hood. The, uh, my, my syndicate, Universal Press Syndicate, has a very large database of uh, cartoons by hundreds and hundreds of creators. It was down for five days this past week. Uh, I think, you know, it's kind of like we're, we're going to start to see these failures at Twitter. You don't know. It could be a denial of serve. It could be a, you know, DNS attack, but yeah. it could also be, um, you know, it, it could be something as simple as, you know, the, they don't have enough coders. They're short staffed. They're, they're not maintaining the data stack. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it could be something really boring like that. And generally speaking, uh, an organization like WikiLeaks is going to try to fix the problem and not communicate that they're working on it until after they've figured out what's going on. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, you know, given who they are, they have lots of enemies. So that's certainly possible. And I hope that's not the case, but so it could be something really innocuous too. Ted, the Wall Street Journal is reporting today that investor purchases of homes uh, are down 30% in the third quarter. Housing starts and housing resales are down even more than 30%, and housing prices are expected to fall by as much as 20%. This is all due, of course, uh, to the rise in interest rates. Um, And frankly, the Fed said that they're looking at another half-point rise in December. Some economists are now saying that we could be facing a housing crisis like the one that we saw in 2008 and 2009. Do you think that's the case? It seems like there are still pockets of the country where real estate is strong, like where you are in New York. I don't think that we'll face something else like the subprime mortgage crisis. I mean, Mm -hmm. certainly something else could go wrong. But uh, that crisis had a unique set of circumstances that were related, you know, basically to uh, overvaluing, overpricing securities that had un- that were un- that were weak on the underlying level, and issuing a lot of loans to people who couldn't afford their mortgages. 
Um, that's not what's going on now. Now it's ex- it's been exceedingly hard since Dodd Frank to get a mortgage, even if you could afford it. Um, you know, so I think that's not it. Um, it's not going to be a crash like that. Right. It's going to. I think we're going to we're going to see a, a recession. Um, Paul Krugman has an interesting piece today in the New York Times where he's also talking about how rents are finally starting to collapse. Also, uh-huh. and uh, and and so you know, a lot of us like you know, I'm I'm paying exorbitant rent where I live in Manhattan. Uh, you know, two bedroom apartment, forty six seventy five. Um, it's like it's it's like. People are like me are looking at well, why, as the cities are collapsing, are rents still going up? So that's uh, you know I, th- I think you're seeing you're going to see the inevitable correction, and uh, you know people are just not going to be able to sell their houses, and they're going to people the only people who are going to sell are the people who have to because yeah. they've been transferred out of state or something. That's right. Finally, Ted, there was a report in the Guardian today saying that big U.S. corporations, big ones like AT and T, Boeing, Delta, Home Depot gave more than $65 million in campaign contributions in the 2022 midterms to election deniers, the, the likes of Carrie Lake and, and uh, Doug Mastriano. Should we be alarmed by that, or should we just expect companies to cover all their bases by donating to everybody, no matter how crazy, just in case? Uh, it's that second one. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they do. Um, I, I was uh, you know, always amazed. I, I think not everyone's aware of this. It's very strange. You always think that they pick uh, the companies pick sides. You know, oh, like uh, right. Hobby Lobby is Republican or McDonald's is 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 Democratic. But it's really usually exactly equal or close to equal donations to both parties in every race. Um, so you know, I mean, it's the money in politics thing. I don't want to hear anyone say we got to get the money out of politics. <laughs> get rid of capitalism, and then you'll do that. But otherwise. Yeah. Uh, That's it. Isn't that the truth? One last thing that has popped up just in the last hour or two is CNN is asking a judge to dismiss Donald Trump's defamation suit against uh, against them. I had forgotten that he filed this suit against CNN until Michelle reminded me of it. Um, Uh, Of of course, course, this could drag on for many more months before Trump's uh, uh, motion is heard. But But, uh, does does he have any claim? in your opinion, against CNN? Well, he, uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, they, I'm, a, I'm, I'm big, I'm big in, into defamation lawsuits. Yes. I filed two of them. Um, so I don't I. think that he has a legitimate claim. Uh, he's, uh, you know, they, they expressed an, opi- they expressed opinions and they didn't do anything that could be defined as actual malice. Yeah. Under the under the uh, you know under the meaning of the uh, of the um, anti you know uh, New York Times versus Sullivan yes uh, so they have to, you have to either he's a public figure and he would have to to prove to a court that CNN published stuff that was false knowingly that it was harmful or that they had reckless disregard for the truth and everybody thinks they can drive a car through reckless disregard for the truth and you kind of should be able to. But in in the real world, judges kind of ignore yeah. reckless disregard for the truth. So even if, like, say, CNN didn't work very hard at researching an article or they didn't do all the due diligence that you or I might have done as a good journalist, the, you know, they tend to get away with it. There's a wide leeway for First Amendment rights. Amen. That was the voice of Ted Rawl. 
Thanks for joining us, Ted. Thank you. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking about, you know what? We have some good news to start with. Long, long overdue. Yeah. uh, But some good news coming out of New York State. We are talking about mascots and how it seems like a fight to get one New York school to drop the team name Indians and its Indian warrior mascot has led all to uh, all New York State public schools being ordered to drop names, mascots, and logos that reference Native Americans and Native culture. And so joining us uh, to talk about how this happened is John Kane. He's a Mohawk activist and educator. He's producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast and co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio New York. John, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. You know, in the intro, you always say that I'm an activist uh, and an educator. And and I think sometimes that could be missed that uh, that I'm not just on the radio or doing a podcast that I actually that I actually do stuff. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, one school right. is the school that I graduated from. Yes. And that fight was led by me two years ago. I traveled to my old high school in Cambridge, New York, and formally asked them, to just stop, to get rid of the mascot. I mean, it's, you know, the Washington football team has already done it. Cleveland hadn't done it yet with the baseball team. When I asked, uh, they did it like a month after that. Um, but, you know, the trend was clear. And I, and I told them, it's it's not a question of if you're going to drop this, but it's a question of when. And so can you do it with some grace? I mean, mm-hmm. do it with some dignity. And so that's what I asked two years ago. Um, the majority of the school board, I think, agreed with me, but they were really concerned about the backlash from the community because I got to tell you, white folks love this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they love playing Indian and, you know, they don't do it with anybody else, but they, they love to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it, 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 they tried to temper that backlash and they took their time. And, you know, like I said, I went out in there in November. I went back out in December again. Uh, to their next board meeting and uh, and and made a more you know a more elaborate uh, presentation about the issue, um, and then they were going to vote in like February or January or March or something, and then they put it off. So they in the end they didn't vote until the end of June um, or in, in their June board election, and and then it got hung up. They 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 didn't actually put it to vote. They said you know what let's delay this vote and we'll do it next week. So they had a special board meeting where they were going to consider a compromise from actually voting on a resolution to retire the mascot. And in that that week or 10 days between the two votes, um, a lot of things happened. One, the, the New York uh, Association of School Psychologists issued a statement. There were the the valedictorian for for Cambridge Central School offered her thoughts on the, on the matter, and when they finally came to vote, they voted for a compromise um, resolution first that 
would have kept the name but changed the 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 logo and the and the, okay. the imagery, um, and that failed. It failed. Um, uh, a three to two voted against it. So then they brought back the original uh, retirement mask, uh, retirement resolution, and they voted three to two to retire it. Well, the the the, the sad thing is, they they seated new board members between June and July and they and then the new board came back and and voted to rescind that retirement resolution. Now, I, I got to say before I before I go too much farther here, let me be clear. The New York State Department of Education had issued a memorandum 20 years ago. I mean, it was actually and I don't know if this is a coincidence or if it was planned this way, but Commissioner Mills in on April 5th in 2001 one day before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights voted five to two to issue a statement calling for an end to this, he issued a, a memo to all schools saying, "Look, you got to get rid of these things. You know, but you know, do it in a time that's practical. I, I'm leaving it to you to do this. This isn't a you know a an order with an end date. I'm saying you need to get rid of this." And and he, and he addressed the whole thing about. No, it's not an honor. Native people don't consider it an honor to have you white folks mocking native culture. Um, but but he made it clear that was 20 years ago. The problem is that the New York State Department of Education has been almost silent ever since then. So this fight that I had at my old high school um, actually got picked up by, I would say, only a couple dozen locals who really stood with me. I mean, some of these were old friends, but but there was a specific group called Cambridge for Social Justice that that really stepped up. And when they did the retire, uh, rescinded the retirement resolution, five families petitioned the New York State Department of Education to say, look, what they did was arbitrary and capricious. It was an abuse of their authority. And the the commissioner, the, the commissioner that now is seated, uh, Dr. Betty Rosa, she agreed with these families, and so she issued an order to reinstate the retirement resolution, and and of course, you know, Cambridge kind of went nuts, mm-hmm. um, and you know, they they um, sued her in state supreme court, and then lost. Imagine suing because you want to keep this logo. I mean, it's it, uh, sorry, I just it's it is just the, what what a thing to dig your heels in on. Anyway, go on. But John. this is happening all over the country. I mean, so I mean, it's important to realize just how. Uh, and you know, I, I know you try to do this without the red and blue treatment, but, yeah. <laughs> but well. this has become a very right wing red area, red state, you know, battle. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, you, you can see in any place you see a bunch of Trump flags, those are the folks that are fighting like hell to keep their Indians mascots. Mm-hmm. And so, so what ends up happening? Um, and by the way, Cambridge was uh, had already filed their notice of appeal to to appeal that that court ruling already, but but I gotta say, in the midst of all this, once Rosa had issued this order, I went on on, on a bit of I went on my own campaign with New York State Department of Education. Now there was there was a pending there was a bill floating around the New York State Legislature, but but I never have a whole lot of confidence in, in that. Mm-hmm. So I kept pounding on Rosa and say, look, you just need to ban this stuff. Don't don't just issue an order against Cambridge. Because now you're saying that every other school that has a, a native mascot has to file a petition with you to have it changed. And you could do the entire world a favor. You can do every board of education a favor by relieving them of this responsibility. 
Good because most of the people who sit on these school boards, until all the, this big right wing push to put, um, you know, <laughs> non cancel culture and non CRT folks on these school boards, mm-hmm. most school boards want to do the right thing, and this one wanted to do the right thing too until they uh, until they seated two newly elected board members who ran solely on the mascot issue. I might add. I mean, honestly, um, crazy. <laughs> Can I also? <laughs> it is- I, I want to point out also that, um, you know, when you say like this was just one school, but there were other schools. I'm looking at a, a quote from uh, the senior deputy commissioner of the state education department who says, as of today, there are roughly 50 to 60 districts in New York alone that were still using and, and, and that's, these mascots. That may be over a- there may be over a hundred schools. That's 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 fifty to sixty districts. Yeah. But when you count up all the schools, it's probably over a hundred schools in New York alone. Mm-hmm. So when that same uh, deputy assistant issued this order, and 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 now he took what Commissioner Mills did twenty years ago and say and said, "Time's up." Yeah. You you've you've had twenty years to fulfill uh, what what Commissioner Mills requested that you do, and some of you did. But many of you didn't. Like I said, 50 to 60 districts, over 100 schools. And basically, you know, Baldwin said, you know, time's up. You've got till the end of this school year to get rid of these mascots unless you can somehow in, uh, evoke permission from a uh, a recognized you know, nation, uh, a first nation or whatever to – you know, to to grant permission for you to keep the, these mascots, they, they've got to go. And 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 again, there are a lot of schools that that really just lost. You know, they blew a gasket. They they pretended like this was a bombshell, ignoring that they were already asked twenty years ago to do this. Mm-hmm. There's a school in the Albany area, in a in a a, a, a suburb of Albany called Schenectady, called. Um, Mahanison High School. Now, let me first tell you what Mahanison is. Mahanison is a bastardized word that comes from mashing Mohawk, Onondaga, and Seneca together to form the name of your school. Oh my and God. then you're called the Mahanison Warriors. And these people are losing their minds. Damn it, we're not going to do a damn thing until that, uh, until New York State Department of Education puts some clarification. Well, the clarification is clear. Look back 20 years ago. Yeah. I know it's been uh, 20 years of silence, but what this, this, uh, what the commissioner is now saying, this deputy commissioner is saying, no, by the end of the 22, 23 school year, which is this June, you need to uh, and now look. They're saying you have to change it. Now they're not saying that you you've got to you know go through this massive massive overhaul of every school to you know to repaint and redo your gym floors and do everything else. But change it and then cycle it through. Get rid of your as you cycle through your mass your your uniforms and and you have to say but. Take it off your sign. Take it off your letterhead. Take it off your website. Yeah. And stop calling yourselves. Warriors, Indians. There's, there's still two schools in New York State that call, call themselves Redskins. Wow. And I mean, the Washington football team really dragged its heels on that one, oh, right? Yeah. Like two years. That seemed. See, here's oh. the thing. I, I was here thinking that the Washington football team was actually late on this, right? That that we're relatively behind, but apparently not. <laughs> well, they they were late on this, but I gotta say, what I mean, and 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 I'm gonna I gotta give some credit here. You know, as a native person, I don't think we give proper credit to the power of the Black Lives Matter movement because when that movement generated after Sandra Bland and you know Breonna Taylor and and George Floyd, 
we saw Columbus statues come down right alongside those those uh, Confederate statues, uh-huh. and it, and it was in the wake of that that the pressure mounted against Washington, and it came from financial interests. FedEx, you know, would sponsor their football field, uh, Nike, um, Target, Walmart, Amazon. They all said, "Yeah, you can't keep doing this." I mean, it's a dictionary-defined slur. Uh-huh. You've got to do something with your name, and so it was in the wake of that. That Washington, Dan, Daniel Snyder, the owner of the team, basically had said, I'm not going to change it. And you can put that in caps. It's going to stay forever. And well, it, it, he did change it. And, and, and in the wake of that, many schools followed suit. But there's still a bunch of these schools digging in Pennsylvania, um, you know, states all over, all over the country. Now, New York has, jo- has joined, I think, six other states now in, in issuing a ban. But I will say what's six. unique about what New York State – Six other states. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, only uh, 44 to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What I will say that's unique about this. And, and, and again, this is something that I personally pushed was that I, I I told the, the New York state department of education, it's on you. You have the authority to do this. You have certain laws that didn't exist. Even when commissioner Mills uh, made the request 20 years ago, you've got this dignity for all students act. And that's cited in this, in this order. So, I really pushed that. No, it doesn't require the New York state legislature to do stuff. I mean, the political interests and the infighting and the partisanship there. I mean, this is a department whose job is to secure a safe space for education. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say safe, free of discrimination and, and racism and, and all that other stuff, I'm not saying they, they totally get it done. But in this instance, I'm not giving any credit to, to the, the governor of the state of New York or the New York state legislature. This was done by the New York State Department of Education. And and I think more states who have these education departments should, you know, they should be pressured to take a stronger stance. And, and, and look, what I will say again, this was not a national campaign. This didn't have a star-studded cast of characters, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pushing New York State. This was me. And, and literally two dozen social activists in a town that was overwhelmingly in favor of keeping this thing that pressed this both, you know, with their school board to the New York State Department of Education and ultimately, you know, saw a court uphold that the authority of, of Dr. Rosa to to order Cambridge to do it. And I think that's what finally gave this this agency, this department, in the confidence to say, no, we're going to ban it all. You know, we, we've been too quiet over 20 years. We've we got to put an end to it. And like I said, it, it's it's a pretty big deal. I, you know, it, it's being fairly well covered, but I don't think the uh, I don't think the emphasis is putting being or, you know, properly, you know, uh, um, uh, emphasized put it, uh, that I, I on on the small scale fight that uh, that made this happen mm-hmm. and and how it differs from some of these other these other states that I think that you know that had legislatures that moved on it that's a really good point right that that this began with a you know one man going back to his old high school right a small a a uh, relatively sort of small battle that has turned into something significant for the state um i yeah. i just remain surprised one that as you say uh uh there are now six states that have such laws on the books, because I think, again, if you are just looking at the at the national level, right, a, a couple years back, the Indians decided uh, that they finally decided that they're like 
it's beyond parody offensive logo uh, was out of date. We have the commanders making that decision. I think the, the Braves are still holding on. Uh, I guess actually, the, the, no, you the, got the, the Seminoles down Chiefs, in Florida. The yeah, the Chiefs. Yeah. So, Black you know, Hawks I think in, uh, in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 there's still a few out there. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk on the on the subject of like uh, the the importance of it. I mean, I feel like I want to ask this question, but I want to preface it by saying it's enough of a reason to do this, that these names are insulting. Right. There doesn't need to be any more sort of broader uh, uh, result or effect. But I wonder if you think there is one. Right. Do you, do you think there is a sort of broader change if you if you get out of the sort of cultural milieu, this idea that for some reason, one culture, one specific culture is for some reason a, a mascot or cartoon? Well, you know, I talk about this all the time. There is a unique racism that native native people experience. And and part of it. You know, you you can play, say that it's a numbers game. We're a very small population. We don't have you know the the juice that uh, that that a larger group of oppressed people might have. We, we we certainly don't have the the money and that kind of stuff to 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 lobby these kinds of things and and to. But no, we experience. I mean, just the idea that white people would would and and I'm sorry I, if if this comes across as as. Be, targeting too much but these are predominantly white school districts that at the time when they took these things on I got to I got to bring up residential schools so yeah. little white kids could smear their mom's makeup on their face and go to their their school football games and play indian while native kids were being beaten for for trying to hang on to any part of their identity and and I know there's a tendency not to associate what native people experience as as racism, but but there really is no other word to describe the way these white supremacists. And I'll tell you, the only thing that's you know one of the things that's even more racist than than uh, than you know these these communities using native people for mascots is the response that they give when you tell them they can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really is. It's like it's just. Trying to keep a grip on on power and history, right? That's all it can be, because there is not anything more significant to you. About, I mean, if you're that attached to like maybe the name of the team that you played for in high school or college, I mean, I think you have some psychological problems to deal with. You know, <laughs> well, and there are plenty of people who live that glory day, uh, you know, those glory days over and over and over again. But but you're right. This is about somebody else controlling our identity, and we saw Hollywood do it with with film. We you know we've seen you know um, it, it done in literature. But as we try to assert that that we're not just still here. But we aren't those images that you've been that you've been brandishing all these years. We aren't those those goofy you know logos that that Cleveland had or or even in the any of these you know these stereotypical images that that schools are, are using. That's not who we are. And in fact, arguably, we never were those images. I mean, we, you see states on the East Coast using. Um, you know, plains Indian headdresses mm -hmm. for their for the logos, and and they say, well, it's our connection to native people in the area. No, it's not. Yes, <laughs> you there places like Cambridge. If you were to ask the average person in Cambridge, what Indians are you claiming to be here? They couldn't even give you an answer. They don't yeah. know. Is it Mohican? Is it Mohawk? We here. We don't know. We're just, we're just Indians. We're the Cambridge Indians, and and you know, so they they can't even. 
they haven't taken these mascots and used these the um, this identity that they claimed as a reason to do better study on native issues. We hear that now. We hear people say, "Well, um, maybe we should have a stronger Native American curriculum." And most of what the reason that's being brought up is is to try to justify keeping what they know is wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. John Kane, hey, you know, congratulations, right? C- congratulations <laughs> on such a, an effective result of your activism. It's That's good right. to be able to talk about some good news once in a while. Yeah, I mean, we, we uh, you know, I did a show where I said, uh, oh, it's happy Native American Heritage Month. Who knew? Yeah. Well, this is one of the few pieces of good news that has come out of the month of month of November. <laughs> you know, we, we've got Supreme Court trying to overturn, you know, laws protecting Native children. You've got, you know, you know, all this this terrible stuff that we're always facing. But so yeah, well, I, I thank you for that for those congrats. Uh, um, it, it is long overdue, and and I'm glad to have been a part of making such a, a substantial change. Yeah, I hope it I hope it starts snowballing a lot faster. Uh, we're gonna have to let you go. That was John Kane. You can hear more from him on the Let's Talk Native podcast and on Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica. And I know now we've got we've got just a little time, man. We got so much bit. like real news and weird news. Let's yeah. do the weird stuff. Go for it. Alrighty. Well, let's begin at one of my favorite places, Sotheby's Auction House. Okay. Oh, fancy. I, I love it there. So Sotheby's announced that they had sold what they're calling a well-used pair of Birkenstock sandals, once owned by Steve Jobs. Oh my God. It says that the brown suede sandals, which date to the mid-70s, retain, quote, the imprint of Steve Jobs' feet. This is so upsetting already. And not because I'm anti-foot. Yes, I am. I don't even touch my own feet. I went to, I went to <laughs> Target and bought a brush. You don't so touch I don't, your own feet? No, feet disgust me. They're repulsive to me. I wearing sandals to yeah. the office more often. I, I, no, I, I can't wait till the whole flip-flop fad is over. It's not a fad. <laughs> Anyway, what do you think these disgusting used Birkenstocks went for? Ah, uh, God, I don't know. More yeah. uh, $220,000. Wow. People love Steve Jobs so much. I guess so. That's, I guess so. I w- those are a thing that I would. I, I don't like to, you know, rain on other people's uh, good times, but I would like to buy those and set them on fire. Yeah, say, no, you good. can't rub your feet on Steve Jobs' foot sweat like, or your face on it. It's just give it up. Yeah, not good. Isn't that great? So I want to talk about dogs for a minute. Uh, I hope nothing bad is going to happen to no, them. No, no. Okay. Uh, on October 29th, just a few weeks ago, as Catherine Burleson and a friend walked Burleson's 13-year-old corgi Aww. named Emma Aww. at Trinidad State Beach in California, a pack of 10 standard poodles burst from a nearby car and raced toward them. Oh, no. Burleson leaned down to pick up Emma but she wriggled out of Burleson's arms just as the pack attacked. Quote, I thought Emma and I were going to be killed, Burleson said. To make things even weirder during the incident, Burleson felt her finger being bitten, right? But when she looked up, it was the owner of the poodles who was biting her finger. What? He later said he was sorry. He thought he was biting a dog. What? Which, That's not how you control your dogs by fighting. So did you know that a pack of standard poodles is called a pep squad? <laughs> I did not know that. No, it's not. For true. real? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
please, I can't breathe it as it is. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just thought that was a good one. Emma, poor Emma, was severely injured. Oh, my gosh. She had to undergo emergency surgery. That's awful. But she's healing. Uh, this guy that bit the woman's finger, he apparently owns a dog service, I'm sorry, a service dog company, but uses standard poodles uh, as the service dogs. I don't have anything against poodles, but they're not like, you know, poodles can have, poodles can be mean. Oh, yeah. They can. And they're big. Oh, yeah. Standards? They're giant. Yeah. Yep. How about this one? Okay. Two unnamed thieves stole merchandise from the Ross Dress for Less store in Springfield, Missouri. This was last week. They then hopped into two separate cars to make their getaway, and they crashed into each other. <laughs> pretty they good. tried to run, That's but the good. cops just pounced on them and got them. I enjoy that. That's a good one. Yeah. That, that was a good one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Misdemeanor theft charges. Um, would you like to hear one from me, John? I, w- I would love it. Uh, and on the topic of uh, boy, most successful assassination in history. Uh, we talked about the Japanese parliament uh, looking into a, a law that would allow family members to get their donations back from churches if they felt like they were made under shady circumstances. Um, now, the Ministry of Education and Culture is beginning an official investigation into the Unification Church's activities in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could leave to, if they find enough evidence of violating the law and significantly harming public welfare, they could dissolve the church and strip it of its uh, status and its tax benefits. And, you know, the lesson here is if you assassinate a politician, <laughs> you can have a positive impact on your society. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're really taking him very seriously. Wow. wow. That's pretty funny. That's yeah. all I can say is wow. Yeah. Yeah. How about, How about this? this? I went home uh, to my to my hometown in Pennsylvania over the weekend and then I went to Pittsburgh to see a friend. He lives in a little village called Wilkinsburg, which is just outside Pittsburgh. Police in Wilkinsburg were able to easily identify a carjacker who followed a woman off a bus at a park uh, and uh, jumped into her car. He jumped in the car, just took off. It says they located the stolen car a couple of hours later. The people inside had hopped out and run away. They'd gotten away. But one of the thieves did something really, really stupid. So what's the first thing he did as soon as he stole this car? He synced his Bluetooth. (laughs) So the cops turn the car on and it says Daryl's iPhone. Wonderful. On the screen. Wonderful. So they traced the phone and it went back to a Westinghouse high school senior by the name of Daryl Cameron Jr., 19. Uh, It says for whatever crazy reason... He's still at large, huh. but they know that he stole the car. Okay. You know, I have a story. Uh, this is a friend of mine. I forget what country she was in. It was a Nordic country. I think it might have been Finland. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was just visiting, didn't speak Finnish. Uh, most people uh, in Scandinavia speak English, but not every single person. And she saw a car outside that she thought was her Uber to go to the airport. So Ooh. she just goes down, goes down, tosses her bag in the car, says, hey, you know, thanks. I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm going to the airport. Thanks. And the guy seemed to... Seemed kind of strange about it, but, you know, started driving and drove her. He got to the airport. He wasn't an Uber driver. He was just like, this woman, I guess she, I guess she needs a ride to the airport. Seems, seems like she's in a hurry. Uh, awesome. So I'll do my best. Yeah. Awesome. Hilarious. But that was like, it really, it sounds like a, um, it sounds like an urban legend, but <laughs> this is definitely a real person who I know who uh, told me about this. 
We have, we have 30 seconds left. I want to say really quickly on a serious note that a court in Georgia, the Supreme Court of Georgia, just ruled in the last few minutes that um, people can do early voting on Saturday. Republicans asked the court to block people from voting on Saturday, with the argument being that it would help the Democrat. The court said people should be able to vote whenever they want to vote and are able to vote. Right. So Saturday. Look at that. The polls are open in Georgia. We get more good news. Imagine that, that never happens. Let's end on that note. That's right. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Enjoy the holiday. We'll see you on Monday.